the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The term empath can be used to describe a person who experiences a great deal of empathy, often to the point of taking on the pain of others. These highly sensitive people give too much at their own expense. According to today's guest, Dr. Judith Orloff, it's important for empaths to incorporate daily self-care practices that protect them from the stresses of an overwhelming world. She's here today to discuss tools that empaths can employ to stay healthy and happy. Dr. Orloff is a psychiatrist and a member of the UCLA Psychiatric Clinical Faculty. She's a New York Times bestselling author whose new book is Thriving as an Empath, 365 Days of Self-Care for Sensitive People. Welcome, Dr. Orloff. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. So, Dr. Orloff, I love when you come on our show because I always enjoy our conversations because I'm an empath, and I learned so much from you, and your strategies always help me manage my life. So for listeners that may not be familiar with the term, what is an empath, and how can someone tell if he or she fits the profile? An empath is somebody who is very sensitive and intuitive and open, but doesn't have the same filters that other people have. So we tend to feel things uh, more strongly than others. And we have big hearts, but we tend to also take on the stress of the world and the stress of others and tend to be over-helpers or over-givers, so we risk sensory overload and exhaustion. So as a psychiatrist and an empath, I know how important self-care is to be able to stay centered, to not absorb other people's energy, to be able to not over-give and learn how to set boundaries. So all of those are skills empaths learn. And when I apply these skills to my life, the the challenges of being an empath are lessened and the gifts are just amplified. You have an empath self-assessment test on your website, drjudithorloff.com. And out of the 20 questions, I have 18 yeses and one that could go either way. So I'm a full-blown empath. And that's really no surprise for me. As I said, I, I believe that I am. And I often wonder, is being an empath a superpower or is it a super stressor? Oh, it's both. Uh, if you have self-care tools, though, it's a superpower. And it's a power that you enjoy. It brings you depth. It brings you compassion and love and relationships and connection to nature. If you if you like connection to people and to nature, being an empath is the way to go. It's you know if you have you know that neurological makeup, it allows you to really love people and to really connect to life, to people. It's just a, a beautiful depth that you have if you're an empath. And it's only a stressor if you don't learn the self-care techniques because then you're wide open to stresses. If you meet an energy vampire, let's say, you have no strategies to use. You know, if you have a complainer or a drama queen or a chronic talker, you just get mowed over by them. And so what I wanted to offer in this book is what do you do if you encounter 
no, a chronic talker. Here is what you do. So you have a plan. And then that, if you have a lot of different plans for different problem areas, then you're empowered because you know how to deal with it. Doctor, what is actually happening in the brain when a person is an empath? Well, it's thought that the mirror neuron system, the compassion neurons in the brain are hyperactive, meaning they're really working overtime where you feel compassion for everyone and everything and they don't shut off. Um, And so that can be a problem unless you learn how to work with that. But compassion is the, the main quality that empaths have. They have extreme amount of compassion. Are empaths sometimes diagnosed with personality disorders or things like ADHD, anxiety, depression? Empaths are diagnosed with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and my big gripe with the medical profession is that they don't know how to diagnose empaths. If you are an empath, that changes everything. Right. Because Whatever diagnosis you are given, let's say you have chronic fatigue, let's say you have ADD, um, whatever diagnosis you have, it's going to be colored by being an empath. And so by learning how to maximize your empathic skills and deal with the challenges, sometimes the other illnesses disappear or sometimes they just lessen. But if you're an empath, let's say with a very real physical disease going on, if you're not practicing self-care, that disease will be much more challenging. And if we're not practicing the self-care that you teach, then we can end up getting over-medicated or medicated unnecessarily. Exactly. And that happens all the time where empaths get medicated with antidepressants, anti-anxiety, this medicine, that medicine. And That's not usually the first line of treatment for empaths. The first line of treatment is, number one, you diagnose an empath. Number two, you take a history and develop a plan for which areas are your problem areas, which areas are you being drained, which areas are you being stressed and challenged. Do you take on the stress and emotions from other people? All right, the plan is, if I work with somebody, it's how... Do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? If you are an overgiver, if you take on the emotions of other people, you know, how can you regulate that? That empowerment and self-regulation is really incredible for empaths. If a person realizes that he or she is an empath and they're exhibiting some of the types of, of symptoms that we've talked about, how can that person get the proper diagnosis? Are there doctors and therapists out there that even recognize this? Where can they go? Um, well, you know, the, the integrative medicine doctors and the functional medicine doctors are more apt to understand this. And I, I'm certainly, you know, doing an educational you know, training for healthcare practitioners. And it's ever so helpful to have a community because many empaths feel isolated, alone, misunderstood. And particularly their nurses, their doctors, psychologists, they're on their own. They don't have a supportive collegial uh, system. So when you learn how to find your system and your network, it makes a huge difference. Understanding what we're experiencing is the first step. It's really up to us to watch what's going on within us. So how can a person, therefore, learn to spot the first signs of sensory overload? Um, Well, what I would do is go through thriving as an empath. It starts with January 1st, and it ends with December 31st. And there's a a, each day is devoted to a different self-care technique, and one of them is spotting sensory overload where you notice in your body the signs where lights are too bright, people seem too loud and too much is coming at you too fast, you might have various symptoms, you might feel tired, you might get irritable. Now you have to notice, you know, you how do you feel baseline? And then how do you feel when you start to get the first signs of sensory overload? And I've trained my body you know, in my, my mind to, to notice this so I can nip it in the bud because I it's very painful to go on sensory overload. And I, I sometimes do when I'm in airports. You know, if I'm stuck somewhere and the plane is late, that's my most vulnerable place because I can't get out and I'm waiting for a plane and it's chaos and it's noisy and there's no escape. And so that's very difficult for me. And so I'll go off into a corner, I'll meditate, I'll go into the bathroom, I'll listen to some music, and try and calm it all down. 
So doctor, would you share one or two of your daily self-care practices with our listeners? Yes. Uh, learning how to set clear boundaries is very important for empaths. Um, learning how to say no, that no is a complete sentence. You know, learning how to say no. Empaths often wear an invisible sign around them that says, I can help you. And so people flock from far and wide to tell you their problems. I don't know if that happens to you, Joan, but it happens to a lot of empaths. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you have to give yourself permission to say no. You know, I'm not available. Empaths have to learn how to be not available at times. So if somebody comes up to me, let's say, at an airport and, you know, starts talking and then starts telling me their problems, I could sense it rearing up, you know. And so I just say to them, you know, thank you for, you know, saying hi. I'm, you know, having a quiet time now, so I prefer not talking. This is my downtime. And I'll, I'll stop it. You know, I won't just listen to a stranger telling me their life story and all the trials and tribulations that they're going through because it's not healthy for me. I want to pick and choose the people who I listen to, you know, because listening is a great gift. When you sit there and hold space, there's a technique in thriving as an empath called holding space, where you practice sitting with somebody, being in a heart space, being in a loving space, but not trying to fix anything for them. It's holding a space as they're talking to you. And that's very different than what most empaths do, where they try and get in, well, have you tried this? What about this? Go to this healer. I have a phone number for you. You know, all of that. You don't, You just want to hold the space. You don't want to do anything except send loving energy. And that's a skill to learn. And as a psychiatrist, certainly it's the way I function, where I hold space for people and I help them activate the healer inside of themselves, which is very different than trying to fix them. And empaths often get caught up in trying to fix that people, especially their loved ones who are experiencing suffering. You know, so that holding space for someone is one technique and thriving as an empath. Setting boundaries is another technique. Um, another technique is asking yourself, is this emotion mine or another's? Now, how do you know if you're feeling anxious, if it's yours or somebody else's, if you're an emotional sponge? Because emotional sponge will soak up other people's feelings as well. And so there's a technique on learning how to differentiate other people's emotions from yours, which is a key technique for empaths. And also, you know, in the beginning, I have a, a day devoted to I am not too sensitive and meditating on the gift of sensitivity rather than buying into all the shaming messages that you might have gotten from parents, from teachers, from society. Oh, you're too sensitive. You need to toughen up. Now, that's what my mother used to tell me. You know, where I would come back from shopping malls and crowded places and just exhausted or just not feeling that great. And she would say, oh, dear, you just have to toughen up. You need a thicker skin. And that isn't the solution. You know, it's just well-meaning parents who didn't know better often say things like that, you know, especially in those days. And still, but to know that those shaming messages aren't true, that you don't need to toughen up, but you do need to learn self-care techniques so that you don't suffer by taking on all the different emotions and stresses of the world. And doctor, when you're creating these changes in your life and you're implementing the practices that you prescribe for us, doesn't it also create new pathways in the brain? Doesn't it cause the brain to react differently? Oh, definitely. I mean, just the simple self-care practice of learning to turn off your stress hormones and turn on your endorphins via your thoughts, you know, that's an amazing exercise and it creates new pathways in the brain. Because if you're having a lot of negative thoughts and you worry a lot, that's creating a cascade of stress hormones, cortisol, and adrenaline in your system. And what that does is put you on sensory overload. That's the fight or flight hormone. So, you know, that will put you, you know, into a panic. And so if you're able to say, um, thank you for sharing, but I'm not going to be obsessing about the same fear a hundred times and I'm going to be thinking a more positive thought, or meditating, that creates endorphins. And the endorphins are the blissful 
neurochemicals in the body that you want in your body. You get them through exercise, you get them through laughter, you get them through meditation, and then you start feeling blissful and calm. And so just by that simple self-care technique that you can read over and over again in the book and just master it, um, you have the power to change your biochemistry in your body, which for an empath is a godsend. And doctor, we're talking about empaths, but these practices can be implemented by anyone. Everyone can benefit from them. Everyone can benefit from them, um, definitely. Um, learning how to work with these. There's just some of the practices strike more home you know, for empaths because it's just part of, empaths are very similar. And we encounter a lot of issues that are the same. And so we, we have a deep capacity for understanding each other and what we're going through. And so just some basic skills, you know, can make a huge difference in the quality of your life. And yes, everyone can benefit from the, from these techniques. And what I, you know, I've just been on a book tour. And what I've seen, you know, where parents are reading the book to their empath children and they're having like family circles around the book. And I love that because parenting is so important in supporting these empathic abilities in a child. And when a child doesn't even know what's happening, learning, you know, how, how to deal with, you know, your great empathy and your great compassion and not overgive or be overwhelmed all the time. It's just, it's just made my heart so happy to see this. The book is Thriving as an Empath, 365 Days of Self-Care for Sensitive People. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Orloff and her work, you can visit drjudithorloff.com. That's D-R, drjudithorloff.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, I'd like every sensitive person out there to celebrate your abilities, to commit to learning self-care techniques so you can just thrive as an empath and enjoy being sensitive and enjoy being giving and loving and connecting to nature and the universe. You know, have it be, you know, a gift in your life and, you know, Put in the effort and the discipline to learn the self-care so that your quality of life can improve. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us and for providing tools that can help us manage sensory overload. We have so much stimulation coming at us on a daily basis, and practicing self-care and following your advice can help us thrive. So thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Did you know that 70% of your immune system lives in your gut? Everything you eat and drink affects the way your body works and ultimately the way you feel. Think about it. Everything you ingest, whether that's food, beverages, or supplements, either fortifies your immune system or weakens it. What are you doing to help support it today so that you have the right defense system in place when this cold and flu season kicks in? Hi, I'm Jill Merriman, a doTERRA certified essential oil specialist. 
I love helping people improve their overall well-being by using doTERRA essential oils because they're safe, effective, and natural. These wholesale-priced products are CPTG, which means Certified Pure Therapeutic Grade. They're considered a medical grade and beyond organic. During these tough times, there is more emphasis placed on self-care as a way to keep our immune system strong. The immune system helps the body stay healthy. Without support, it cannot defend you from potential external threats. Along with adequate sleep, regular exercise, and a balanced diet, essential oils can help boost your immune system. One of my favorite go-to doTERRA products is their Protective Blend On Guard. With this product line consisting of an essential oil, gel caps, toothpaste, mouthwash, hand sanitizer, spray cleaner, and even laundry detergent, Ongar provides an excellent line of defense. Used on a daily basis, it can help keep your immune system strong and your home environment clean. If you're open to learning more on how essential oils can help you, contact me at jill at jillmarin.com for a complimentary 30-minute wellness consultation. Hi, doctor. Hey, freelancer. Hi there, business owner. Today's world has so many acronyms. As leaders called upon to speak to our teams, to the public, and to our patients and clients, we must be very careful about the choice of acronyms that we use. If folks don't understand our acronyms like ROI, EBITDA, EMR, CRM, FTCPA, etc., then our messages are missing the target. This is Vito Mazza with Kinem.com, and today I want to share two powerful and positive acronyms, NARUKA and NAOP. In our professional careers, when we are awarded preferred status by a particular person or organization, it's a positive idea to share that with our potential clients. I'm delighted to share a proud moment about NARUKA, the Northeast Regional Urgent Care Association, and NAOP the National Association of Occupational Health Professionals, two outstanding medical organizations. We are thrilled to announce that Kinem Inc. has just been honored with preferred vendor status by both of these outstanding medical entities. They represent two of the fastest growing segments in medicine. Kinem will be helping them with cash flow management services. We're very grateful for this recognition and would love to tell you more about it. So call me at 800 850-5110. We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an Autism Moms Coach and founder of Mom Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her Spectrum child. She is here today to discuss the importance of self-care. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. A pleasure to be here. So, Heidi, before we get into talking about self-care, I want to start off by discussing moms and their leadership role as it relates to autism. Autism moms must step into their leadership role in order to advocate and to orchestrate all of the services and care that their spectrum child needs. How can they do this? What do you believe they need to do? The best way to be a good leader is to make sure that you are operating from your own strengths, because that is the foundation of, for all of us to do our very best, to be our best in order to do our best. So it's become aware of what am I good at? What do I love doing? What am I amazing at? And if there's something I need to get done, I can bring in the team or the, the resource to help me with that. But I know I'm coming from what I am amazing at. And when you're focused on those strengths, that is your opportunity to be the best that you can be and step into that leadership role. And so, Heidi, I I started off by asking about leadership because it gives us a, a little bit of a framework for all of the responsibility that these moms take on, all of the, the roles that they must fulfill. So I would assume that self-care for the mom of an autistic child would be more important than ever. In your book, You Just Have to Love Me, Mothering Instructions from My Autistic Child, you write that mom's self-love and care is the foundation of the coaching system that you've created for the moms of autistic children. So let's 
talk a little bit about this self-care. What are the elements of masterful self-care? So it's very related to this idea of, of the leadership and knowing what you're good at, knowing what you love, knowing what fills your own cup and keeps you at your peak performance. So let's say you are funny and you enjoy humor. So use that. Use that in your language. Use that in your approach and your conversation with people and the activities that you do so that you're continually feeding what you're good at. And and people feel that energy. And when you're coming from that positive place, you, you generate that in those around you. So starting from knowing yourself and saying, what do I love about me and what do I need? Really taking the the principles, we're very good at identifying what does my child need. Let's now apply that, those principles to ourselves. What do I need right now? Because ultimately that's going to benefit our child. So there are certain elements of masterful self-care. One is the the fundamental stuff, you know, the nourishing. What what do you just enjoy what brings you joy you know are you someone who likes to listen to classical music or whatever make sure that you turn on the radio you have you're in the car put it on something that you might neglect ordinarily make sure that you're at least taking care on some deep level of i like this i'm going to do it the second piece is self-esteem which is acknowledging yourself for all that is amazing and good about you because knowing yourself does not only mean the long list of stuff that you know I can be better at and I wish this weren't true and you know there's that wrinkle and oh I should have said that better no what about the the amazing list of who you are and so come from that place so you know if you know that you um did something that you consider to be brave or courageous maybe you did something that was difficult you know, feel good about yourself that you did something that you value to be important and here you went and did it. Then you have respect, you know, this positive self-regard, this respect to treat yourself as a worthy person, um, to learn how to say no and set boundaries because you are someone worthy of of that um, regard. Self-compassion, being kind to yourself, forgiving yourself when you mess up. Don't be harsh. Don't beat yourself up. So be kind. Be careful what you say to, to yourself because you are your own best friend or worst enemy. So choose to be your best friend so that you can derive the benefit of what it is to have an encouraging best friend. And I mentioned saying no boundaries. That's really important for self-care because it's impossible to thrive otherwise because so many people want a piece of us. Learn to say no with your boundaries, but also learn to say yes. Choose life. What do you love? What are you passionate about? And live into that because when you live into all these components of self-care, you will be the best that you can be and you will be able to do your best and ultimately be there for you and then model that to be there for your child. So then Heidi, would you say that you just have to love you is practical advice? Absolutely. It's it's everything. It's mm-hmm. everything. Just love you and all will flow from that. You you can't love another before you love yourself. You can't give to someone from an empty cup. When you learn how to love you and realize what does it mean to truly meet someone where they are and meet their needs, and you learn that by practicing on yourself first, you are then masterful and amazing at doing that for those you love and those you care about around you. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Heidi and her work, you can visit momsspectrumoasis.com. That's moms with an S, momsspectrumoasis.com. Or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Heidi. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized. As a professional organizing firm that specializes in serving clients who are chronically disorganized, we help people organize their lives as well as their homes. Many of our clients have ADHD or other brain-based challenges and are always looking for the perfect organizing solution, and that includes electronic apps. Here are a few helpful tips to help you choose the right organizing apps for you. One, keep it simple. First, try using the apps that come with your electronic device. They may be all you need. Download additional apps that support only what you really need to do, like financial management or travel planning. 
Two, when you do need an app, do a quick search. Try not to get bogged down in the abundance of choices or get distracted by shiny object syndrome. Three, set criteria for which apps to consider. The whole idea of an app is to simplify your life. Is it fun and easy to use? Does it appeal to multiple senses? Four, download one that looks good and use it for a while. If you get bored, try another one. Don't get discouraged and think you failed because your first choice didn't work out. Now you know what doesn't work for you and you can find something that does. Remember that the best app is one you'll actually use. For more organizing ideas that fit your life, call me. I'm Gail Gruenberg, and I can help bridge the gap between wanting to get organized and actually doing it. Call me at 201-364-6833 or visit my website at lgorganized.com. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Raising kids is not for the faint of heart. Those cute babies grow up to test the limits and they can make us wonder what we're doing wrong. Joining us today to talk about what happens when kids take over is Sean Grover, a psychotherapist with 25 years of experience working with adults and children. He's the author of the book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Being a Parent Again. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Greetings from New York City. So, Sean, those adorable little babies, they grow up, and often when they do, they can become demanding and bossy, often taking control of the household. Why do you believe this happens? Well, this is uh, it's sort of nature's collision course. You know, as a child becomes more independent and developing a sense of themselves, they want to do things on their own. They want to, if they learn to walk, they want to run. If they learn to uh, use a pen or pencil, they don't want your help. They're constantly pushing you away. Uh, and this, this is a built-in um, dynamic between parents and children. Parents are in the unfortunate position of saying no a lot to protect their kids because the child doesn't know if something's dangerous, she, he or she can get hurt. And so this is the essence of a conflict that goes gone on forever, where a child wants something, the parent has to say no to protect them. And that is the, the sort of the core conflict that generates a lot of tension. And how you manage it really predicts the outcome. So, Sean, it sounds like it's a natural learning process and something that we want to have happen. But when does it turn into a negative experience? What happens that causes a parent to lose control? Well, I would say if a child is uh, demanding something, a lot of parents, you know, I just did a parenting workshop at a school uh, this week, and I looked out at all, it's an elementary school. I looked out at the parents, and every single one of them looked absolutely exhausted. Mm -hmm. They looked drained. They looked like they just could take a nap at any minute. So when a parent gets very fatigued, and a child becomes more and more demanding, there's more of a surrendering to the child's wishes just to, to buy some peace. So, but, but when a parent starts to surrender their leadership and cave to a child's demands, particularly if the child's being bullying or aggressive, uh, then they're reinforcing that aggression, that if you're, aggression, if, if you're aggressive with me, you'll get what you want. So... That is the tipping point in terms of dysfunction, when the parent really, because of exhaustion or life or circumstances, begins to reward the child's bad behavior by giving them what they want at that moment. And the child learns very quickly what behaviors to implement to get what he or she wants. That's right. There's always a testing period. In healthy child development, children go through these testing periods where they want to have more control. They want to... uh, have more freedom. They want to have more independence. So they're testing the parent. How far can I push you? And the parent's job, because child children are born with natural limits and boundaries, is to set boundaries, to set limits, to provide structure. So, and that that all falls under the heading of leadership. And the most difficult part. I raised two sons, and and. Doing everything that you said, the most difficult part is not caving in because once you say, 
there's going to be a consequence the first time you don't follow through, then your words become meaningless. That's right. That's right. And they, they don't take you seriously. And I've seen lots of situations in my office between parents and children. They'll come in for a consultation, and I'm absolutely shocked at how disrespectful uh, the child is to the parent, how they talk down to them, how they raise their voice, or they curse at them. And the first thing I think is, how long has this been going on? Unfortunately, it started very early, and it was never addressed. So a child doesn't mature just because they're aging. They mature because they learn how to manage their own feelings, their own frustrations, and communicate. When uh, the, the child is just rewarded, it sort of puts a wrench in that whole process, so they may age, but their behaviors are very immature. Do you think a lot of the times we have issues because parents, they want their kids to like them. It's like they need their approval. They want to be their friend. I remember growing up, my parents could care less if I liked them. They didn't want to be my friend at all. Do you think that that's something that's causing a problem today? Well, I think parents are really working very hard uh, to come up with some sort of new parenting model. So uh, most of the time when I go out into talks, I'll ask, Whose parents here went to a parenting workshop? Oh, no hands ever go up. Whose parents here read parenting books, more than one or two? No hands go up. So in an effort to sort of undo maybe a dictatorial or punishing parenting that we may have experienced, parents tilt the other way and start, start to be more friends than parents. And that, that's a situation where the child begins to exploit that. Uh, if you want your child to like you, you have to deal with that on your own. There's some part of your history you're replaying. But if you act on it, if you're trying to buy affection from your child by rewarding them, the child's going to sense that they can exploit that. So you're absolutely right. If your your goal is to get your child to like you, we're already starting on the wrong footing. Sean, you say that to fix a rebellious child, a parent needs to begin by fixing him or herself. And I think that's the opposite of what we do. We always look to the child to see what's wrong with him or her and don't usually look to what it is we're doing. Well, this was a big debate when I was writing the book um, with the publisher because uh, I really wanted to write a manual for parents to work on themselves, uh, to prepare themselves for parenthood by going through their history and, and reviewing how they were parenting it thinking consciously about the kind of child they want to raise and the kind of culture they want to establish in their household is sort of this preventative measures and preparing for childhood, for parenthood. The publisher came back and told me no one is going to buy that book because parents want to blame their children. Mm-hmm. They don't want to work on right. themselves. We want to blame uh, everybody else for anything. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So the book, they changed the title and, and spun it differently, but it's still in there. I, I really want, before we even talk about the child, we got to talk about your interior world. That means how do you manage your feelings? What are the triggers that get you into trouble with your kids? What's the vision you have? Or what kind of culture do you have around technology? What kind of structures are you providing? And if we look at your own childhood, are you repeating what your parents did? Or maybe you're defining what your parents did by going the other way. These are all the questions that we want to really explore before we even talk about how they parent, because it's ultimately a parent's behavior and their choices are the cause and the child's behavior is the effect. So often parents will come in for a consultation and once I get a sense of what's going on, I may say, I don't need to meet your child. We're going to work on you. And things turn around you know, very quickly when a parent really takes responsibility for their choices and their behavior and starts to act with self-mastery and a little more mindfulness. You know, if you have a parent that's yelling or criticizing and shaming and blaming, you're going to have a very defiant, angry child. So we have to figure out how to parent, you know, in a way that, that elicits cooperation rather than defiance. So, Sean, a, a parent does a self-assessment and he or she gets a little bit of an understanding of the parenting style. What is something that that person can do right now that will make a difference tomorrow in that child? Well, first we want to look at like their, you know, what, what their parenting style is. The ones that I, I outline in the book that cause the most difficulty is a guilty parent, which is a parent 
where something's gone wrong. Maybe there's a divorce. Maybe there's an illness. Maybe there's uh, learning problems or financial problems. So they feel guilty. So they're always trying to make it up to the child by overindulging or over-rewarding. There's the anxious parent who's just an anxious person. They just uh, infect their child with anxiety because they're worrying all the time, which translates to the child like, you don't believe in me. You don't trust me. And then the fix-everything parent is pretty impatient. They're really not interested in understanding. They just want things to be fixed and move on, which really that's a form of neglect for a child because it's just not about knowing them. It's about correcting them. So once you identify your parenting style, like where you fall in, or maybe you're somewhere in between, then we can take a look at exactly what to do in your home. Sean, you just mentioned an interesting point. You you brought up divorce. And with so many families having two households, what happens to the child when each of those parents have differing styles and, and that child is going back and forth between those two environments? Yeah, I see this an awful lot. Uh, it really depends on the parent. If uh, it, Often I get a lot of complaints that one parent uh, does all the unpopular tasks, homework, schoolwork, you know, getting them up in the morning, getting them out. And the other parent is the fun parent, takes them to the movies, takes them to sporting events, and so forth. When you have that imbalance in the parenting, you, you're going to have a child really in conflict. Uh, their loyalties are going to be split and so forth. So first thing, if the parents are in the house together or in separate households, you will always want ideally united parenting. That means they sit down and discuss the decisions they make, the structures they provide, the bedtimes, and try to make them as consistent as possible. That said, uh, there are a lot of parents that can't do that after divorce. Mm -hmm. So I always encourage parents that you have your rules for your household and your partner has his or her rules for her household and you just focus on what you can do and where you can do it. If your ex is a narcissist, uh, unfortunately, you can't really co-parent with a narcissist. They will always uh, be driven by what's in their interest, not what's in the interest of the child. And I've certainly spent session after session with parents who were narcissists uh, in the worst sense. And when they walk out of their office, they do what, out of my office, they do whatever they want. So mm-hmm. the feeling of it's just complete defeat. So I always encourage people, look, if that's your situation, co-parenting is not going to work. Just focus on what you can do. And you say, those are dad's rules for dad's house. It's a different situation. But not to get caught up in the drama, he said, she said, or criticizing the other parent. That's really fertile ground for uh, really creating a lot of internal stress on your child. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. Do you feel stressed during the holiday season? Well, you are not alone because 38% of people's stress levels increase during the holidays. Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at Metro Hypnosis Center. People feel the pressure of finding and paying for gifts. The social pressure of parties and family gatherings can create anxiousness as well. It is time to break the cycle and to bring back the calm and peace for the holiday season. Instead of buying gifts, create new memories with people and go out together for a fun activity. Take time to pause and say no so you don't overschedule yourself. Allow yourself to be present and connect to the children's laughter and excitement and let it be contagious so you too are happy and laughing. Take deep breaths and allow yourself to bring calm within you. Connect to what is really important for the holiday season. Show kindness and compassion to others. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, and you can find out more about hypnosis at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. Energetic patterns are everywhere 
in homes, workplaces, supermarkets, and even places of worship. What most people do not know is that these energetic patterns can affect our lives on a spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional level. For example, if you are generally a happy, healthy, and positive person, the energy released from you would be a higher vibration. On the other hand, if you are an unhealthy, unhappy, or negative person, the energy released from you would be of a lower, dense vibration. Imagine what type of energetic patterns are released from couples when a divorce is in the mix. If one of the couples remains in the home after the divorce, those energetic patterns are embedded in their surroundings, including the walls, furniture, and even the bed that both of you slept on. If one of the couples moves out, the furnishings they take with them are still carrying the energetic patterns from the divorce. When a divorce is at hand, the best way to move forward in your personal environment is to have your space cleared professionally with the intention of healing on all levels. Space clearing will remove old stagnant vibration energy and replace it with a new revitalized energy, creating the feeling of a clean, fresh start. Remember, this is your space and your time. Your space should reflect who you are and your goals in life. Starting your life over can be a cathartic experience. Embrace the moment and make it count. This is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified and intuitive feng shui and space clearing consultant. If you'd like more information, you can visit me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book, Infant Inspiration, and creator of the online course, Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss how to overcome overwhelm. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. Good to be here. Amy, there is so much going on in the world today that it's very easy to become overwhelmed. With the work that you do and with all that you see, how do you define overwhelm? Well, so the actual definition, Joan, is ready for this. It's to drown beneath a huge mass. That's a little scary, right? But in this specific context, What we're really talking about is an emotional state of overwhelm, and that's a feeling of being overpowered by various stressors, which, as you mentioned at the beginning, is really apparent, especially right now in our country. And unfortunately, when we're feeling emotionally overwhelmed, when that feeling occurs, it prevents us from enjoying life. Okay, so you just said that it occurs when we're overpowered by various stressors. So what do you believe are contributing factors that lead to a person being overwhelmed? Well, the primary root of feeling overwhelmed is when we have too many things we're responsible for, and that causes the stress, right? Mm -hmm. So there's only so much information, Joan, that our minds can actually handle. You know, studies show that about 100,000 thoughts go through our minds every day. And that is more stimulation than any other time in the history of the world. And now with the addition of the pandemic, we're feeling even much more overwhelmed because especially as women and working mothers are bearing the brunt of the pandemic. Homeschooling now, meal planning, cleaning more often because everyone's home. And so everything that we see, we hear, we feel stimulates our minds. And it's really important because our minds can't process all this information. So we need to know where to start. And in 2020, when people want things done faster and more things done and all of that, we need to remember that there's a cap to what we can each take on. And so we need to identify what each of us is feeling stressed by. And remember that the feeling of overwhelm is just that. It's a feeling. It's a state of mind. And we're the only ones who can control the state of our mind. And Joan, you know, because there's this pandemic that's happening right now, I think that's one thing that people can do is read about what other people are experiencing and listen and learn from what other people are doing as to how to handle the pandemic. For example, the New York Times is running a section nationwide right now, and it's called Family Interrupted. And it's a new interview series, and it talks about how not one person in America has not had their life interrupted by coronavirus. So 
it's meant to be a section that helps readers find strategies as to how to overcome situations they're dealing with, as well as offer readers hope regarding the pandemic. Amy, you mentioned that we have all of these thoughts every day. And with the brain's negativity bias, we tend to focus on the negatives. So Mm -hmm. what do you suggest we do? What strategies do you offer that can help us manage when we feel overwhelmed? So the five strategies I would recommend are clarify your source of stress and figure out what you can do to manage it. Where's the stress coming from? Second of all, prioritize your tasks. If you like, Google Eisenhower's Matrix. It helps you put your tasks in a certain order in regards to importance and not important, prioritizing different tasks. Third, focus on one thing at a time. Really, we all feel better when we do one thing, we get it done, and we move on to the next. When we're multitasking, Joan, it just adds to our stress. Fourth, take a break. Change your mindset. Move your body. Go play basketball in the driveway with your kids. Go for a walk around the block. Do something different. Turn on music. And lastly, be still. If you're feeling overwhelmed, the other thing that you can do is just sit quietly and focus on your breathing. And just do that for a few minutes, and it will actually lessen the millions of thoughts that are going through your mind. And I know you're probably, you know, the listeners are probably thinking, I'm too busy to sit still. That doesn't make sense. But the Dalai Lama sits still. When he has too much to do, he meditates, and then he's able to go back and do what he needs to do more productively. So those would be my suggestions, and especially in this time of the pandemic. Amy, thank you so much for those suggestions and for being here today. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can follow her on her Instagram page at amycollins.mommentor. That's at amycollins.mommentor. Or as always, you can hear more from Amy on our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.